Um, why don't you guys open up to Colossians chapter 3. If you've been with us for any length of time, you know that we've been going through this book. I want to jump in first by making a couple quick statements in terms of what we have been looking at up until this point. In short, Paul has uh, been unpacking for us what God has done in Jesus is that he has created a, a new humanity, a brand new community of faith. And this is distinguished from the old humanity. So in other words, I created a little chart that I'll show you guys to hopefully make some sense out of this. And then we'll go through this very quickly, just kind of, like I said, by way of review. Uh, we've been looking at this for quite some time already in this great book. And then we're going to begin to take a look at it. So I'm still trying to figure out fixing this thing here right now. So why don't we take a look at this slide real quick, and then I'll unpack this. So in short, what we're looking at are basically those that are in Adam and those that are in Jesus. Those that are part of Adam are part of the original creation. They're part of sort of a family head, um, and it affects the different type of people that you and I are, the different types of relationships on a horizontal level that we engage with, but also affects the world. So, for example, in Adam, human beings, it's you and I, we are motivated by self, self interest. This is exactly what happened in the garden. Adam and Eve were motivated by self rather than God saying, eat. You know, eat this and you'll live, avoid this and you'll die. Adam and Eve were like, oh, I think we know better. It was self-interest, self-motivated. And I think you'd agree that this is the problem with the world in which we live in. This is the problem, if you're honest with yourself, with your heart. We're self-motivated. We do everything for the expense of self, the benefit of self, the life of self. And yet, it's a trap because we know that what that means, oftentimes, for us to live, that means I need a host body to feast off of, right? And that's where sometimes this enters into relationships. This is why, by the way, oftentimes relationships are broken. Because you're the parasite, and they're the host. You're feeding off of them. And what happens, if you've ever been in the reversal of that relationship, meaning you're the host, and someone else is feasting off of you. Anybody been in that life before? You're like, wait a minute, I don't get to, like... You know, the bug analogy. All right, let me put it this way. If you've ever been in a relationship where people are taking advantage of you, sucking you dry of your life for their benefit at your expense, you know, it's challenging and frustrating and it leads to brokenness. So what happens is in Adam, what we have are people that are motivated by self. It leads to relationships that are broken and it ultimately leads throughout this entire world to sin and death, ultimately death of all humanity. But what we have in Christ, on the other hand, is that Jesus reorients, changes people's hearts by motivating, giving them a new motivating factor based upon love. Their hearts are changed. Rather than motivated by self, in other words, we're the center of our universe trying to motivate our lives, move along. What happens is that Jesus basically does an operation, changes our hearts. So rather than being motivated by self, he puts a new heart in us that's motivated by love. Laying our lives down for other people. Loving others. Um, if that means rather than um, not taking advantage of other people for, at, for our expense, it means us laying our lives. Can you guys hear me okay? I have no hearing right now. My head is so much bigger than it normally is. And I just can't hear anything. So I, if I keep tweaking this, it's because I feel like I can't hear myself. So as long as you guys are telling me you can hear me, I'm not going to keep tweaking with it. On the side note, if I'm yelling extra loud today, that's why. I can't hear it. Um, so what Jesus does is he rearranges our hearts so that we are now motivated by love. The second thing, relationships, rather than being broken and fractured and fragmented, they become 
restored. They become healed. Because people are willing to say, you know what? I'm going to swallow my pride. I'm going to lay down my ego. I'm going to do what I can to repair this relationship. If that means forgiveness, if that means me doing what i got to do to somehow meet halfway, to bring about, to be a bridge, to bring about a reconstruction of this relationship, I'll do that. That's what the gospel does. And then in Jesus, this new humanity also spreads out into the world (coughs) by way of uh, righteousness, resurrection, and ultimately life. And this is what we see in Jesus. So in short, if I can put it this way, and what Paul's been really making the argument for, hold on a second here, just a second. This thing's driving me nuts now. It's like dangling on my ear. Sorry. There we go. I got full range of motion. All right. So the point of the matter is, is that what we have is really Paul's whole argument is that people are either in Adam and part of the system that's motivated by self, that's broken, that then is ultimately under the submission of sin and death or in the new family of Christ, the new humanity, where by their life, their heart has been rearranged, remotivated by a brand new engine. In some ways, it's kind of like he took the old engine of our heart that was in a car and put a brand new engine in it. If you don't get the automotive type of analogy, think of it as like a computer. Most of us work on computers. It's like Jesus giving us a brand new computer, getting rid of the old Windows stuff PC that constantly is prone to viruses and breakdown, and giving us a brand new operating system on a Macintosh computer. So not only new hardware, but also new software that actually just works. And what Jesus does is he gives us a new heart that's not motivated, that's changed, that rather than being feeling like we have to live preserving self, this new humanity lives realizing that self is preserved by him, by Jesus. Do you realize how freeing that fact is for us to truly live knowing that he alone preserves us, frees me from the constant ongoing oppressive tyranny a feeling as if I have to be the one to preserve myself. I have to be the one to provide security, comfort, peace, life, name, acceptance, etc., etc. And this is what he's saying, is that, that that actually frees me to make good on broken relationships. Because I'm not just using another person so I'll get something, and now that I've used up all the resources that they have to offer, now they're no good for me, so I can actually just distance myself from them or dump them. But in Christ, I begin to see, you know what, all people have value. God loves them all. And so therefore, I can restore a broken relationship because God is in the business of restoring people. And this actually leads to righteousness, righteous actions throughout the world because we're motivated, we're moved by, empowered by resurrection, and life, which is ultimately what we see in Jesus. So this is, in short, what Paul has been basically unpacking and talking about up until this point. So I'm going to read, beginning at verse 11. I'm going to go through. I'll maybe make a couple quick comments as we go through. But then I'll begin to basically unpack three specific things that I see Paul uh, is laying out and describing for us as part of this new humanity that was established in Christ. So verse 11, why don't we pick up. Sorry, this is really, there we go. I think it's going to work now until next time it breaks. Here is what Paul says in verse 11. 
there is no Greek, Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, for Christ is all in all. The first word that he uses, the word hearer, is an indication that the fact that he's been describing all along in this new relationship with Christ, in the new humanity. Here, Christ is all in all. So in other words, what we're going to look at today is, and I'll unpack that for you in just a moment, is another way of saying it's someone that has lived whereby the very center of their life has been changed out. The very engine of their life has been replaced. The very operating system of their life has been radically updated or upgraded to something that actually functions, that actually works. Jesus sent a work inside of us. And here, what Paul is saying is in this new humanity, he points out, he says, there's no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, and I'll just focus on barbarian or Scythian. Uh, the word barbarian um, is a way, especially if you lived in the first century, you probably would have been uh, impacted or affected by living within some sort of a town or a village or a city, metropolis, that would have been heavily impacted by Greek or Roman either architecture or philosophy or lifestyle, all right? It was called the Hellenistic lifestyle. What that basically meant is that you were educated in a very specific type of system. You learned certain languages. You learned certain cultures, certain poets, certain uh, authors and philosophers and stuff like that. That would have been all part of the Hellenistic training. Now, let's say you lived in, and you would have also spoken Greek, called Koine Greek or common Greek. And so that would, that would have meant that if you were part of the actual system of that ancient known world. Now, let's say you lived in one of those villages, but you didn't like the Greek language or you didn't like Greek culture, and you're like, you know, I just want to live here, but I don't want to adopt any type of the culture. I don't want to learn language. I just want to live here. I'm going to speak my, you know, tribal language from, you know, Africa or from, you know, somewhere up way, way north, you know, Viking or whatever. And, uh, but you would have been classified as a barbarian. That's, that's all that means. I, mean, I know we think of like barbarian, like Conan the Barbarian, like big rippling like chest and, you know, like maybe some of them are like that. But the reality is um, it just simply meant that you were someone that lived in Greek culture but abandoned the Greek culture. You didn't adopt it. Now, a Scythian was somebody that actually probably be more alike to what you would think of like a barbarian. Scythians were the people that you would sit around and talk about their stories about Scythians. Scythians were people that lived north of the Black Sea. They would have been probably classified in modern-day terms like Ukrainians or Russians. That area around there, around the Black Sea, that would have been a Scythian. These guys were very barbaric. I even use the word barbarian, but barbaric type in their tribalism. These would have been people that you would have sat around, you would have talked stories like, I heard of a tribe like far, far north that actually eats their enemies. No way, I heard the same thing. They like eat their arts. And like you, you'd be sitting around talking about these people like, those Scythians are savages. Like we've got to go kill them or do something about them. They're ogres, you know, that type of an idea. So here's what Paul's saying. In Christ, in this new humanity, all of the former dividing boundary lines that once used to classify, and we used to, rank and identify people based upon their clothing, their language, their culture, their education, their income level, the color of their skin. Paul says, it's no more. It's all gone. In Christ, something brand new has been born, and this is what's happening. In other words, here's another way of saying this. In Christ, no matter who you are, no matter what color of your skin, no matter what type of 
language you have grown up with or what type of educational system you were born into or had the privilege of having, all are invited and welcomed to join the table. It's a feast, a banquet. That's what Paul's saying. All of this is in Christ. This actually leads to a very important concept because oftentimes Christianity is oftentimes accused of being um, too narrow. And we have to accept that accusation because in reality, it's true. When Paul says, in Christ, or when Paul says, outside of Christ, there's no salvation. What Paul is basically saying is that outside of Christ, here's what you have. Tribalism. Outside of Christ, what you have is the caste system. Outside of Christ, what you have is the social economic divide. Outside of Christ, what you have are blacks who hate Mexicans and whites who feel they're superior to everybody. And some of us are like, ah, well, that was back like 2,000 years ago, right? Really? We still live in that world. It's still just as dysfunctional and broken as it ever has been. But here's what Paul's saying. The solution is a new humanity in Christ. All are invited to come to that table, that banquet. They lay aside those distinctions, those boundary lines. Not, they, they lay aside those things that used to divide or separate or become the platforms by which people felt prideful or arrogant. Paul says, now in Christ, all are welcome. So you can accuse Christianity of being very narrow-minded, but it's life-giving. Because outside of Christ, all we're left with are our various types of tribalisms. And they're there. And we see them even in our world in spite of being fully advanced in so many different ways. So, keep reading. It says in verse 12, Paul gives his exhortation. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, Paul is, again, like I said, unpacking for us what this new humanity looks like. Some have actually looked at this because if you saw that earlier, um, Paul actually gives a list. And here's the thing. Oftentimes, Christians love to uh, take lists, especially if you're sort of more on the ultra-fundamentalist type, uh, uptight type of a legalistic standing. You love to look at lists. You're like, oh, look, there's five things that we're supposed to do. Be compassionate. Be this, be that. And what happens is a tendency oftentimes to take those things and then not only try as best as you can to live according to those things, but then you oftentimes sometimes become like middle management with a little clipboard walking around checking all of those people that aren't doing what's on that list. You criticize them, you judge them, like, you're not being compassionate. You're not being kind. You're like, you're not very meek, not like me. And there's a tendency to become egotistical and arrogant. 
Um, one author actually suggested this, that this passage in Paul, of what Paul's writing, he's actually defining Christian character rather than just simply prescribing a bunch of rules to, to obey. So in other words, what this author particularly points out is that what Paul's doing is not just simply giving a list of to-dos and don'ts. He's actually saying, look, this is what identifies, this is what describes, this is what, I mean, these are the characteristic traits that you will see that will become innate within those who have Jesus as the new head in this new humanity. These are characteristic traits, in other words. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we don't work towards getting those or towards uh, fashioning those or living in those or becoming comfortable within those because that's why Paul says later, put on these things. It's as if there is something for us to do. But here's something that's really important for us to understand. This is actually another uh, pastor, author, kind of put it this way. He says that Paul always grounds gospel imperatives in gospel indicatives. I'll unpack that. An imperative is something you're to do. Um, in other words, when Paul says, be gentle. Okay, you can hear that and be like, okay, I gotta be gentle. All right, what's gentleness look like? Like, be forgiving. All right, what's forgiveness look like? And I'll, I'll go out and be forgiving. But see, it's interesting. I'll, I'll even throw out another layer that I think kind of Paul is tapping into here. If you notice, there are five things that Paul listed in there. Five things. But that list also, in some ways, is sort of the more positive side of the negative side that Paul had actually talked about earlier in chapter 3 when Paul identifies five other vices. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Okay, So Paul talks about five vices, but now he's saying, look, get rid of those things. Shed those things like a bad skin. All right, shed those things. They're not, they're not part of you. It's like, a, it's like a cocoon. It's like what a cocoon was to a butterfly. He doesn't need a cocoon anymore. It's got wings. It can fly. Put on the new nature. Put on gentleness and meekness and all these other types of things. Now, why does Paul point these out? Uh, one author actually pointed out that what Paul is perhaps doing is that Paul was very familiar with the Greek world, which we identified earlier as the Hellenistic society, right? Um, first century was very familiar with different types of virtues to live by, all right? I already mentioned most of these people obviously were heavily influenced by Greek thought. Now, Plato was one of the original, obviously one of the most well-known uh, thinkers and speakers and promoters of uh, wisdom, philosophy, and then ultimately Aristotle. And both of these guys, in essence, had their own little list of virtues by which to live by. For example, Plato had his four sets of virtues. One, temperance, prudence, courage, and justice. So the idea was that you take these virtues and live by them. So do everything you can. Live according to them. Become temperate, meaning don't be a full-on hardcore drunk. And don't be someone that just sits around and judges everybody who, who, who drinks. Walk with temperance. That was kind of his mentality. Another one of the ideas was courage. So I want you to think about this. In some ways, we haven't gotten too far away from that. Because in some ways, we as a culture, we have our own ideas of what virtue is. In other words, the idea of a virtue is something that if you live according to these particular principles, you will become acceptable in society. You'll win friends, influence people, you get good jobs, people will like you, you'll become a person that everybody wants to be around. And we have our own different types of virtues, even in our own culture. But I want to suggest to you that I think something I think Paul is actually saying, and I'll kind of bring this back in the text, that to just simply live by virtues is not freeing. It's oppressive. 
Let me explain. For example, you take Plato's, one of his uh, virtues. Let's take courage. All right, let's say you live back in uh, the first century where there's a lot of uh, tribalism and let's say your tribe is going off to war and it's going to fight and you're fighting, for the, you're fighting for the glory of your name, the glory of your tribe. So let's say you and your brothers and all your other friends uh, are now getting ready to go off the battle and fight. But here you are, you're just like, eh, you know, I'm not sure if I really want to go off the fight. And, uh, now what you risk is you risk people looking at you and think, you're not courageous, are you? You're a wimp. You're a wuss. What's your problem? You're here to go fight. I don't want to go fight. I want to get a suntan. You are a wuss. Like, that's the problem. Like, now you are, you are sectioned out and you are avoided because you didn't live up to the virtue. All right, maybe that's a bad analogy. Let's take an analogy to some degree from today's culture. There is sort of a virtue. Maybe it's not so much a virtue in terms of character, but there's a mentality even in today's culture that says, a beauty. I want beauty. If I have beauty, beauty will get me acceptance. Beauty may get me a good job. Beauty will get me to have people like me. So the more beautiful that I am, the more accepted I will be. And this, for example, and this affects men, but it also affects women, for example. So if a woman lives according to this concept of if I'm beautiful, then I will be accepted. The problem is, is that the definition of beauty is totally ambiguous. So we are dependent upon finding out where do we find the definition of beauty? Well, if you've ever stood in line at a grocery store, you found or discovered that there's a whole library of definitions as to what beauty looks like, right? They're called magazines standing at, you know, the grocery store right there. And what they tell you is they're preaching to you. They are sending a message to you. And in that message, they're preaching to you saying, beauty looks like really blonde hair. Beauty looks like a very thin waist. Beauty looks like a very large bust size. Beauty looks like having a blemish-free face. And if you have that, you have what everybody wants. And you will be accepted. You will be loved. And what happens, if you believe that, that doesn't liberate you. You're not a slave. Because you do everything in your life to measure up to that definition of beauty believing what it promises. The promise is, if you have this, you will be accepted, you will have peace, you will have life, you will have people honoring you and enjoying your presence in your company. If you don't have this, you're trash. You are nothing. So I want to suggest to you that simply living by virtue alone doesn't liberate you. It enslaves you. It enslaves you. And what Paul is not doing is he's not listing these set of five virtues right here, which there may be a whole bunch more, but for the sake of what Paul's writing to, he's basically saying here's five virtues. Paul is not saying, live according to these things and you'll be a great Christian. Paul is saying, put on Christ, shed your old, soiled, broken garments, and put on something that you've already been given. This is who you are. And the reason why Paul can say this is because, like I said earlier, gospel imperatives, meaning it's imperative, this is what you're to do, are always rooted in gospel indicatives, meaning something that was already done. Some, he, the indicative is something that indicates, points to something that has happened. And so what Paul can say, for example, dear fellow believers, put on like a garment forgiveness. Now, if you just simply stop there 
and you put that weight of forgiveness on you and says, I got to forgive because it's what Christians do. It's what the list says. The preacher demanded. You will now become oppressed, driven by that, mocked by that when you fail it. And you will. But Paul doesn't stop there, and he never does. Every time Paul points out imperatives, he always roots them, grounds them, founds them in indicatives. And what Paul would say is that forgive others just as Christ has forgiven you. So Paul always does this. So he's not just simply giving you a list of do's and don'ts. He's saying, here's who you are because what God has done for you. So therefore, live in this, walk in this, revel in this, glory in this, be in awe of God in the midst of this because all of these things that God is asking you to do, calling you to do, clothing you so that you can do, he has done exceedingly, immeasurably for you. Free of charge. Chiefest of sinners. So this is what Paul keeps unpacking, keeps building into, and I gotta move on real quick. I wanna point out three specific things that this new humanity actually reorients our hearts towards. All right, I'm gonna go through these very quickly. One, the new humanity reorients what we love. Verses 12 through 13, Paul points this out. He says, put on then God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now, Paul writes again to a group of Gentile people. These are non-Jews. And when Paul actually writes to them, here's what he says. He says, you Gentiles, meaning you're non-Jews, meaning you don't, you don't know anything about Ten Commandments, about Moses, Abraham, Isaac, any of the patriarchs. You guys are completely ignorant as to anything having to do with any of those things. Paul uses language to speak to them that was language that was exclusively used for Israel himself. He says, but God has put on then God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. The phrase chosen one, holy and beloved were phrases that were actually coined or God used exclusively for Israel. And so what Paul is saying is that you Gentile people are being treated with the same type of favor as God showered upon special, chosen, beloved Israel. He's showing the same favor to you. What Paul is saying, it'd be equivalent to like, you know, back in the 50s, the civil rights movement, a white guy going onto a bus, sitting in the place where he was supposed to sit, knowing that there are black people in the back of the bus, and he says, you know what, I'm gonna give up my seat for this person, and, and I'll exchange with them. I'll let them sit up there. And that would send shockwaves throughout the culture. Paul sending shockwaves throughout the culture by saying, you Gentiles are chosen, accepted in the beloved, loved, holy. He says, put on compassion. The word compassion is kind of an interesting word because what Paul is actually saying is that this new humanity actually reorients what we love. Reorients what we love. So the reality is, is that it reorients what we love in our hearts. It shifts what we love based upon going from loving ourselves as being preeminent to now loving God as being preeminent. That shift, that transition, now opens up for us a world of possibilities. And what Paul is saying is that as this begins to happen, you will then begin to experience compassion. The word compassion that's actually there in the Greek is actually a really interesting Greek word. It's the word splankna. Splankna, right? Say that. Splankna. It's a really crazy word, but it basically describes a sense of feeling, emotion, uh, a sense of compassion. It's the actual word that was used when Jesus described uh, the, 
Samaritan, the Samaritan, the good Samaritan, that's what I was thinking, the good Samaritan, who saw this person that was suffering and felt compassion for them. It's also the same word that's actually used to describe um, the prodigal father. And you might be like, I thought it was the prodigal son. It is the prodigal son, but if you understand the word prodigal, it also covers the father. The word prodigal is actually interesting because the word prodigal basically means one uh, who's accused of spending recklessly without limits or lavish. So think about this. So the prodigal son, we all get that. He spent lavishly. He wasted. He was just over the limits on what he spent his goods on. But if you understand the actions of the father, the same can be said of him. Because when he saw his son yet afar off, what did he do? Jesus actually describes, he says, the father dropped everything that he had and ran for the son. If you knew anything about dignity in that first century, dads were never seen as running, ever. He's just undignified. If you're a dad, you're the patriarch, you're the head dude of the household, you don't do something that slaves do. It's undignified. But this father, he puts dignity to the wind. And says, I will lavishly expend my energy for my wayward son who's come back. Why? Splachna. <laughs> he had compassion. He was moved by compassion. It moved him, motivated him. And here's what Paul is saying, is that this new humanity actually reorients what, not only just what we love, but also how we love. I want to add one more thing. I got to move on here. I can spend, honestly, I can spend weeks just on this, but I'm not going to. So um, um, verse 13, he goes on, bearing with one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And here's the whole point, is that Paul is basically saying forgiveness is what identifies people that have been cleansed and washed and put on the new robes. I mean, Look, relationships that are identified by constant battle and insecurity, hatred and bitterness and avoidance and seclusion, that's, that's hazardous. That's destructive. That is part of this passing world system. But if we are people of Jesus, people of the gospel, then there has to be a reversal of how we view people that have been at odds with us. What Paul is saying is that if we really understand the gospel, what God has done to us, God has come to us. We weren't searching after him. We weren't seeking for him. He was seeking after us. How? With splachna, with compassion, love, throwing caution, if you would, throwing everything to the wind so that we would be rescued and saved. What Paul is saying is that this is the, same, this is the type of characteristic traits that identify this new humanity. He finishes with this thought in verse 14. He says, And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect peace and harmony, or perfect harmony. Love binds. What does hatred do? Alienates. Doesn't it? So we might be people that be like, I don't hate. Are you alienating anyone? How does that love? Are you avoiding people? Are you not returning phone calls? Emails? Texts? You see someone in the store and you're like, oh, they saw me. I don't want them to see me. 
tucked behind another aisle. Avoidance. Love says, I'll reach out. I will lavish. I will love. I will draw in. Hatred. The components, the elements of this decaying world are blowing out, breaking apart, dividing, divorcing, fracturing, fragmenting. The gospel through the love of God is bringing things together. This is the great news to you this morning that even though you were an enemy of God, deserving of death, deserving of alienation, God has not abandoned nor alienated you. He has sought after you in love and affection. And is not just simply canceled your debt saying, I forgive it, it's all good. He's kicked out the chair at the table and says, there's a spot for you. And you are my honored guest. Come join me. To the degree that you see that, that begins to have a horizontal effect upon every other broken, fractured relationship in your life right now. I've got to move on. The second thing is that we see that the gospel, the new humanity, I should say, reorients where we find peace. Verse 15, he says this, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. Be thankful. I love this. The word rule is actually used in contrast of the last chapter. So look at this real quickly. Chapter 2, verse 18. Uh, the same word actually with an addition, the Greek word kata is actually added to this particular word. Um, the word rule is actually a word that was used for a sports judge or an umpire, someone that is involved with a sport team and their job is to basically make the call, right? Some of you guys are gonna go home and watch the football game today, yeah? Anybody? No? This service is not in the sports. Good, you are my kind of people. I don't really give a rip at all about what's happening this afternoon sports-wise. I'm just gonna take a nap and eat. And here's my point. So what we end up seeing then is that he's saying, let the, let, the, let the word of God, the peace of God rule in your hearts. Let that be what calls the shots. That is in direct contrast to what he says in verse 18 of chapter 2. He says, let no one disqualify you. Then he goes on to decide, uh, describe, he says, insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going in detail about visions, puffed up, so on and so forth. I won't go into all that. Uh, our time is limited. But what Paul is saying is that in the Colossian church, there were certain People that were coming in saying that if you love Jesus, and you really want to be right with God and be really awesome, super Christian, you've got to love God and you've got to journal and you've got to like go to prayer meetings and you've got to do all these other great things and you've got to follow these authors and you've got to like listen to all these MP3s, podcasts, everything else. You've got to do all these things all the time and you've got to avoid certain foods and you've got to keep these certain holidays and as long as you do these things, you're awesome. You're an amazing Christian. And Paul is saying is that what's really happening is that you are being crushed by all these ands. And rather than peace ruling your heart, you're being disqualified. It's crushing you. What's ruling your heart is anxiety. What's ruling your heart are fears. What's ruling your heart is guilt, shame. And Paul's whole point is that part of the new humanity that we are free to let the power of Christ, the word of Christ, rule in our hearts. Think about that. What is ruling in your hearts right now? 
What predominates? What consumes your time, your mind, your imagination? I'll, I'll be honest. I, there are times I, I struggle with fears, anxieties, ruling my heart. Certain things. In certain times in my life, it's been worse. There's times I feel like I'm able to conquer it. For some reason, I'm not sure why, this past week, I had fears, anxieties, crushing, ruling my heart. There are times I'd wake up in the middle of the night just in anxiety. And I mentioned earlier, I, I am a full-on news junkie. I love reading news. I read news on my iPod and my iPad, and I'm just into news. And that is my go-to drug to bring my heart comfort, all right? There's like, oh, more confession. Like, yeah, confession. So the point of the matter is, is that this past week, especially when I found my soul and my heart being overtaken by these anxieties, I couldn't turn to those faux drugs anymore. I needed, I needed the word of God to rule my heart, to let the peace of Christ rule my heart, to communicate to me, to speak to me, to show me that Christ is greater than powerful, more powerful than anything in this world. That's what Paul is saying, is that someone who's part of this new humanity has the power by the freedom in Christ to let the peace of Christ rule in their heart. The final thing, and I'm done, is this new humanity actually reorients what we worship. It reorients what we worship. And I've said this many, many times, that really one of the main ongoing issues for most of us in our lives is what we worship. For example, if you're somebody that's constantly prone towards getting very, very angry with other people and other circumstances that are not going your way, it may not just simply be that, you know, you've, you know you're Irish, you know, it's like you nurture nature, whatever, that maybe the real issue, that the real root of the problem there is that you actually think you're God and everything else is dependent upon you, and when it doesn't go to your way, now you're really angry. What you really have, perhaps, is a worship problem. You need to deny, put to death, the false god. You fall on your knees before the true one. I've said this to guys before, and sometimes even gals too, that struggle the same way. Pornography. Pornography, for many, is an ongoing, constant battle that's crushing people. But when you begin to look at pornography, maybe the real issue with pornography, maybe the real root behind pornography is that it's a worship issue that you are choosing to worship a naked body over the true and living God. You're looking to a naked body to somehow give you peace, give you a rise, give you comfort, give you something in that moment that you are actually disbelieving that Jesus promises to already give. It's a worship issue. It's an issue of worship. What the gospel does, new humanity does, is it reorients what we worship. And in two ways it does this. One, by way of instructions. Why Paul says, but the word of Christ dwell in your heart richly, teaching and admonishing with all, to one another, with all wisdom. So it's one of the reasons why we spend a lot of time teaching the Bible. It's one of the reasons why we encourage in community groups for you to get into the teaching from Sunday morning. Um, to dig even deeper. Let the word of God continue to dwell in your heart. Let it admonish you and give you wisdom and teach you and train you and guide you and coach you along. But then the final thing, and I'm done, is celebration. Is that ultimately should lead to an element of celebration. It's one of the reasons why Paul says singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness. That the natural byproduct of true revelation that impacts your heart is freedom, joy. It oftentimes makes its way out from your mouth in the form of song or 
him. And it's what Paul is saying. Is that really the most song-oriented people, the people that want to sing the most, should be those that recognize they have been freed the most. So we're going to finish right now singing. And I'm going to have the team come on up. And what I want to suggest is that, you know, one of the things that we oftentimes do, we really try to be done by around 35 after. Sometimes we go a little bit late. Um, that's okay. But what's really important is that, especially if you are a mom or dad and you have kids in the back, we really need you to make sure that you pick up your kids by 35 after. If we go a little bit late, we go a little bit late. You're more than welcome to bring your kids back in and you can partake of communion with them. But it's really important that we relieve the workers that are back there because oftentimes we can have a lot of kids, a lot of kids. In fact, a couple weeks ago, we had 250 kids back there. If you know anything about the back back there, the, we don't have a lot of square footage, all right? Our footprint back there is small, proportionate to the little bodies of kids that we have back there. So we need to relieve those kids. So if you're a mom or dad, make sure that you go pick up your kids. If ever, you know, we ever run a little bit later, I get pastor, preacher, gets a little bit long-winded, like sometimes happens every once in a blue moon. Um, um, just make sure that that's kind of like your little indicator. We'll try to continue to remind. You're more than welcome to bring them back in here. I'm going to pray right now. We'll sing a couple songs. You're more than welcome to go partake of communion. Remember what Jesus has done for you. Now, again, we do communion. You can go get it yourself. But another thing we encourage you to do, maybe invite some people around you. If you're a dad, invite your family to go up, partake of communion. If you're involved in a community group, maybe go as a community group. If you're sitting on an aisle, maybe just invite a couple of people. You don't, you're like, I don't even know them. That's all right. Jesus, Jesus invites us, even though we didn't really know him, invite other people. It's a family meal. Remember, we have rugs in the front for you to just get on your face for God to worship. Uh, we have, we're going to have some people over off on the side that would love to pray for you. So anything that's going on in your life, if you're not a Christian here, and you're still part of the original humanity under Adam, broken, sin, is what rules and judges and owns your life, I should say. Jesus wants to set you free. If you're a Christian, and maybe there's anxieties or fears or struggles that are just because you're failing to put off the old life, you're failing to shed that old garment. Instead, you keep going back to those old soiled garments, throwing them back on, going back out in public, and it keeps crushing you. Jesus wants to free you. Just go grab someone that would love to pray for you. Um, Let's sing. God, thank you right now. We want to confess sin, lay our hearts down, trust Jesus. Thank you, God, that we get to sing to you.